Hello, and welcome to The X Degree, a podcast where we delve deep into the abyss of the internet to find strange, convoluted, and seemingly impossible connections between two random things. My name is Eric Stafford. Today we will be looking into the connection between Snoopy, Charlie Brown's dog with a fascinating imagination, and Key West, Florida, the southernmost point of the continental U.S. In the world of hip-hop and rap, a large distinction can be made between the rap scenes in the late 80s and early 90s from the East Coast, centered in the greater New York area, and the West Coast, comprised of the Los Angeles area. Out here on the West Coast, rap culture was centered around rappers coming up from South LA, areas like Compton, Inglewood, and Long Beach. Dr. Dre, Eazy-E, and Ice Cube, DJ Yella, and MC Ren coalesced in NWA. Tupac began his meteoric rise, and Calvin Broadish Jr. was beginning life as a notorious rapper before becoming America's cool, chill, stoner uncle. Snoop Dogg began his career... Wait. Sh- oh, shit. Oh, my bad. Okay, wrong wrong Snoop. Okay. Well, this is going to be a big mood shift, but... So Snoopy is the original cartoon beagle of Charlie Brown from the Charles Schultz comments Peanuts. Snoopy first appeared in 1950 and soon became a more anthropomorphic dog going on his own adventures, usually contained all within his imagination. His most prolific imagination run is imagining he is a World War I flying ace, flying around the top of his doghouse with an aviator cap, goggles, and a scarf. Snoopy is actually so associated with aviation that he was the unofficial mascot of the Apollo moon missions in the 1960s, one time appearing in an interview with Captain Eugene Cernan from episode 2 of this podcast. He was also the official mascot of the Apollo program's safety measures put into place after an accident in Apollo 1 and is still associated with several NASA awards and the fabric cap worn by astronauts is commonly referred to as a Snoopy cap. But within all of his imagination, Snoopy is never successful against his routine nemesis, the Red Baron, who shoots him down in all of his imaginations. There's probably a Freudian explanation for that. In reality, the Red Baron was a real fighter pilot from World War I. Baron von Richthofen was a flying ace for the German Air Force. While piloting and commanding the Flying Circus Wing of the German Air Force, he racked up a total of 80 air victories, which was so many that he was highly respected among other Allied fighter pilots. He was killed in action on April 21, 1918, just five months before the armistice that ended World War I. And honestly, it's kind of something you never really see anymore in global conflicts. One side respecting and praising an enemy combatant. I mean, this could be a sign of the changing of old times that World War I brought, bringing the world into a modern combat with destruction and death dealt faster and wider with advancing technologies. Or maybe there's something about having respect when the enemy is your neighbor. But I'm just speculating. But going into more of how weird and world-shattering World War I was... I want to look at another instance of enemies showing respect for each other during the Great War. On Christmas Day in 1914, just five months after the beginning of the conflict, a series of unofficial ceasefires occurred along the trench lines of the Western Front, and soldiers from either side of the battle met in the no-man's land between the trenches to celebrate Christmas together. It was, and still kind of is, a fascinatingly weird phenomenon. In more than one instance, a soccer ball was brought up from the trenches or fashioned, goalposts were erected, and soccer matches actually broke out between German and Prussian soldiers and the Allied soldiers of the other side, 
all amid the giant destruction that they were doing to each other right in the middle of the trenches. Booze was shared, treats and snacks from home were shared around, Christmas carols and songs even began to spring up, and several accounts of the singing of the now traditional New Year's Eve song, Auld Lang Syne, were sung by either side. Auld Lang Syne was originally a poem written in the Scottish language that translated to Old Long Sense, which in modern English can be roughly translated to The Old Times. The poem, which was originally recited and sang as a toast, calls for celebrating things for Auld Lang Syne, or for old times' sake. It was originally written down by the poet Robert Burns in 1788. I say originally written down because, like most orally past stories, tales, and songs, there is some discussion to the origin of the poem. But in all accounts, Burns was the first to write it down in a letter to a friend. Other letters show the words Auld Lang Syne and other pieces of the poem arising earlier by different authors, but today the song that we know is taken from Burns' letters and writings. We know it as the song that we all know the first chorus to and then kind of mumble the rest after the ball drops on New Year's Eve. You could all probably mumble the melody to yourself right now. It's a song about celebrating the old times we've gone through, celebrating getting through them with the people around us, and looking forward to the times ahead. The song and poem itself became a huge cultural icon among the Scottish people, and as Scottish culture spread in the late 1700s and 1800s, so did the song. Along with this were the people's smooth and calm tempers, abstinence from alcohol, and appreciation of a smooth and cushiony steel wool sweater. Wait, I think I got that one wrong too. Man, I'm really bad at this. But along with the other aspects of Scottish culture that my supposed ancestors took around the world was the tartan. Most people today would call a tartan a plaid, but where plaid refers to the actual cloth, a tartan is the design that's on the fabric, generally consisting of pre-dyed threads woven together in a form of grids. These colors, designs, and plaids were and are still used to denote family and clans, each having their own distinct and separate design. Tartans are so central to Scottish culture that the Scottish Tartan Society keeps a running list of old and new official tartan designs. Some of the new ones consist mostly of designs that you can actually buy online yourself, or corporations make their own for... I don't know why. But they are people. And these tartans were once a huge conflict point in the relationship between Scottish and English. In 1746, the British Parliament passed the Dress Act, outlawing the tartan in every region of Britain. This was an attempt to quell and bring in warring Scott clans of the North, you know, who liked to yell freedom and such, and made it illegal for a man to wear a tartan in public. However, the law exempted the tartans worn by British soldiers, so it was illegal to wear a tartan unless you were a conscripted member of the British Army, kind of paying back and forth for individual liberties and such. And that was the last time the English ever suppressed Scottish culture and held them from expressing themselves and being independent. Okay, I, I usually leave jokes like that, but there's actually a funny joke that I heard from my high school physics teacher one time. He's English. People from England are English. People from Scotland are Scottish. But a successful person from Scotland is English. But tartans were worn throughout the British Empire up to the modern era as a symbol of rebellion against the English aristocratic rule. And tartans are still around today as ceremonial designs on kilts, designs on blankets, and flannels and other articles of clothing. And one place that they rose to prominence was following the rebellious streak. 
When punk rose in popularity in the 1970s and 80s, unconventional fashion was at the center of punk culture. Leather bondage pants, repurposed kink clothes, rebuilt articles were kind of a proverbial freak flag that wearers didn't conform to social standards and acted as a rebellion against the establishment. And in London, arguably one of the centers of the punk movement, the tartan took a common role, usually worn as skirts or patched into jackets and shirts. But I mean, in my opinion, the BDSM attire, the skin-welded leather, and the spiked shoulders were a bit more rebellion-stroking than the tartans, but that's, you know, from someone who, when punk rock, quote-unquote, was in, it was baggy jeans and Converse. But in this, where, where does this attire actually come from? It didn't just kind of spring up on its own. And at least where I was looking and found out, it seems that we what we considered like the mainstream punk attire was birthed from the mind of a costume designer, Sue Blaine. Specifically, Blaine herself and others credit the stereotypical punk attire to her costume design in the 1975 film, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is a cult classic musical from the mind of writer Richard O'Brien. It's a spoof of classic campy sci-fi and cheesy horror movies. It centers around a mad, cross-dressing scientist showing off his new Frankenstein-esque monster to a young, unsuspecting couple. And that's probably the most I'm going to get into it because we don't have all day here, and it's honestly a really fucking weird movie. All I have to say is that the film is still a culture obsession, with Halloween showings drawing thousands of people around the world who participate in call-in responses to the film. But for us, we're going to look at the titular mad scientist, Dr. Frankenfurter, played by Tim Curry. Curry is a decorated stage and film actor and singer whose list of roles and voice credits is way too long to get into, but I do have to mention Spamalot, Amadeus, Three Musketeers, and The Clone Wars. But one thing Curry is known for is his really creepy, distortable face that creeped into our nightmares in 1990 as Pennywise the Dancing Clown from the TV miniseries it, which originally aired on freaking ABC primetime, seared the fear of clowns so deep into the American psyche that I honestly don't think it's ever going to leave there. And the 2017 and 2019 remakes of it made it even worse. But the sheer diarrhea-inducing Satan spawn of Pennywise was originally a beautiful brainchild of the king of horror, Stephen King. King's 1986 It is a marathon of horror. It's a thick thick book. And that's King's bread and butter. King has written 63 novels and nearly 200 short stories in some horror or paranormal setting. Most of it deals with surreal entities entering themselves into everyday life or a normal person receiving a Twilight Zone-esque supernatural ability that never works out the way that it should. His opus series, The Dark Tower, one of my favorite book series of all time, links every story he has ever written into one continuous universe. So in canon, The Shining, Carrie, Cujo, The Shawshank Redemption, The Stand, Stand By Me, 112263, The Running Man, Pet Cemetery, Misery, The Green Mile, Doctor Sleep, and The Outsider, and all of the others are all connected, which I think is pretty damn cool. And while King's first five books are still really good, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Rage, and The Stand... Let's look at his sixth book, The Long Walk. Originally published in 1979 under his pseudonym Richard Bachman, it was actually the first book King ever wrote. He wrote it in college. 
The story follows a Hunger Games-style society where a totalitarian military dictatorship puts on an annual walking competition where 100 teenage boys from all over the country are forced to compete where they walk for as long as they can along U.S. Highway 1, starting in Fort Kent, Maine. Because everything that Stephen King has ever written has to take place in Maine for some reason. In the story, the boys only make it as far as Massachusetts before the main character is the only one still left alive from the walk. But in reality, U.S. Highway 1 extends completely across the Atlantic coast. Similar to the one here on the Pacific coast, the Atlantic one runs from Fort Kent, Maine, to the southern point of the United States, Key West, Florida. Key West may be one of the most bizarre places I have ever been to in my life. At the end of the Florida Keys, Key West was a hotly debated island for most of the colonial period until the United States constructed a naval port there. Today, the island is a strange amalgamation of old colonial houses that look like they belong in the Bahamas, a large decommissioned military base, I think actually the Navy still has another one there too, Truman's old winter White House, a thriving LGBT culture, and tons of rednecks on vacation. One of my favorite things is that the cat population on the key has a high percentage of six and seven toed cats that apparently can trace their lineage to a cat that Ernest Hemingway brought there when he moved there in 1931, which it, I, I have no words. I have no words for that. Well, there it is. A bumping and banging trail through history and horror, but that's one way you can connect Snoopy to Key West. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to John Green's The Anthropocene Reviewed, Avery Truffleman's Articles of Interest podcast, my friend Ryan for introducing me to the Dark Tower series, my job for sending me to Florida about a year ago, and the axes upon which the world spins, Wikipedia. If you want to see some photos of Baron von Richthofen, Tartans of Punks, Pennywise, and the Hemingway Cats, we're on Instagram at to the X degree. If you want to send ideas for new connections, you can DM me there or send an email to xthedegreepod at gmail.com. Also, if you guys want, um, it'd be great if you told a couple people about this. I don't know. Like I said, I keep saying it's for my ego. I really, yeah, it's, it's nice. It's fun. A tangent I wish I went down but didn't. Author Amy Krauss Rosenthal used to hold events every year to celebrate togetherness and community. In them, she took the lamenting cover versions of Old Lang Syne, sewn by British soldiers in the trenches when the war was at its worst. They would sing to the melody, We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here, which is nihilistic as hell. Rosenthal turned this around to look at the beauty of the universe in that we're all here because we're here, because we're here. That whatever the universe has put in front of us, that's why we're here. On hard days, I sing that to myself, and I hope you can too. Stay safe out there.